Do you need help protecting your finances as you enter retirement? David Dickens of KC Financial Advisors has got you covered. Welcome to the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Cover Your Assets KC podcast. Walter Storholt here alongside David Dickens, President and Wealth Advisor at KC Financial Advisors with an office in Overland Park. We're online at CoverYourAssetsKC.com. And we have a great show on tap today. David, how are you this week? Uh, I'm doing great. Now, it's only Monday, but I'm doing really great this week, Walter. How about you? Well, that, that means your week is off to a good start, right? So <laughs> it is. Nice. Plenty uh, of time to have that disrupted, but I think it's going to be a good week. We record uh, most of our shows. Our listeners can get a little behind-the-scenes peak, uh, behind peak here. Most of our shows are recorded on a Monday. Every once in a while, we'll, we might have a different day, but typically Monday afternoons. So we at least know the trajectory of the week at that point of the day, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we we have at least set the tone. Um, and this should be actually a pretty interesting week uh, between our recording, David, and when things actually come out on Thursday. There's going to be a lot of discussion happening in uh, the, the halls of government, which I just drove through D.C., by the way. So the, the timing of your podcast here is, is perfect. I just drove by the Capitol building and saw the Washington Monument. We weren't actually going to D.C., but had to drive through it. Uh, just the other day. And so uh, this is kind of interesting timing here that we're now really focusing and zeroing in on Capitol Hill, what they're doing. And we're specifically talking about these infrastructure bills. And I'll be honest with you, your timing couldn't be better, not just for the reason I just passed through DC, David, but I just can't keep up with all the stuff that's happening now. I feel very overwhelmed in it. And I feel like a relatively informed person doing these shows with you all the time, trying to keep my ear to the ground. And I feel like I've lost track of just how much money we're talking, how many infrastructure bills there are all of a sudden, the consequences of all of this stuff. It's gotten me to the point where I'm just like kind of tossing my hands up into the air. And I feel like I'm probably not the only one doing that. Yeah, I get a lot of questions on this. So I thought, you know, this would be a really helpful 15 or 20 minutes we're going to spend talking about this and just trying to get it laid out for for folks. One thing we we're almost certain of is Congress almost never passes tax increases in an election year. And next year is an election year. So if it's going to happen, it's going to happen over the next, you know, between here and Thanksgiving. And part of it's going to happen this Thursday. So I thought this would be really timely and try to sort out the two big bills and what taxes are associated with each. And as our listeners try to figure out, should I be worried or am I good? Makes sense. Yeah. So give, give us the, the rundown here, because I know there's uh, some new moving parts that have entered the equation. Yeah. So um, there, there are two. When President Biden got elected, he had a three-pronged plan, one of which has already passed. This um, oh, was the American Rescue Plan. It extended a bunch of benefits. But now we're down to two other pieces of his plan. One is called the American Jobs Plan. The other one's called the American Families Plan. We tend to think of them as infrastructure bill number one, and the way broader infrastructure bill number two. So, so I'm going to, let's talk about the infrastructure bill number one, the American Jobs Plan, real quickly, because it is almost assuredly going to pass this Thursday. So, so back in August, the Senate voted with a bunch of Republicans, I think it was like 69 to 30, they voted to approve this trillion dollar infrastructure plan. It's physical infrastructure, roads and bridges and stuff like that. And it was compromise, of course. Um, uh, President Biden wanted like two trillion and they, they got it down to one or 1.2. 
And it's going to be paid for by these increases to corporate tax rates. So before the Trump tax cuts, I think the tax rate was 32 or 35% on corporations. I should have looked that up. I don't have it in my brain. But they knocked it down to 21%. And then this bill and Biden's first pass at it was, let's raise 21% up to 26 and a half. And it looks like where they're going to land on this is 25%. And uh, that's from a variety of different negotiating standpoints. But there are two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. He's from West Virginia and she's from Arizona. And they have a ton of sway in this. And so it looks like that, that increase to corporate tax rates is going to be from 21 up to 25%. And that's how they're going to pay for this thing. Uh, and it's going to go for what most Americans would widely recognize as infrastructure. So the House votes on that this Thursday. Nancy Pelosi was all over the Sunday talk shows yesterday saying, yep, it's going. There's a bunch of talking heads are saying, well, does she have enough votes? And she clearly said, look, I am not putting something up for a vote unless I know we have the votes. So it sounds clear that the House, even if they lose some on the far left, they're going to pick some up from the right and they're going to pass this thing. So it goes to a, a committee and they'll make a few little changes. But it seems almost certain that this first one trillion infrastructure package is going to become law very quickly and it will be paid for by increases in corporate taxes. That's kind of the easy one. And that's not really where, it, I mean, there was some sausage that was made to get that bill uh, ready to go. But the real sausage is getting ready to be made. So this was like the, uh, we, we made the casing. Now we're making the, uh, the, 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 the innards, whatever you put in the casing. Of yeah. The sausage. This first bill might have been hamburger patties. <laughs> now and we're this next one's going to be sausage. <laughs> but let's not go down that road because I happen to like hamburger and sausage. So the second one is the real tricky one. It's called the American Families Plan. That's that three and a half trillion dollar thing that <laughs> there's been so much talk about because three and a half trillion dollars on top of the trillions we've already spent to kind of prop up the economy after the COVID crisis. And then this one trillion, which is actually infrastructure. And there's just a lot of consternation in Washington, D.C., over, gosh, can we afford another $3.5 trillion and do we want to spend money on that? So I thought where I'd go first is just to explain, well, how are they even going to get that passed? Because Republicans to a person have said, I'm not voting on that because it's too much money too broadly spent. Probably heard that a time or two, right, Walter? Yeah, too, too much. Say, say it one more time, too, too broadly spent. <laughs> Too much money, and it's too—it's being spent. too broadly spent mm-hmm. on stuff that you wouldn't traditionally think of as infrastructure, like you know, universal daycare or two years of junior college for everybody. Those are things that are in that bill, in addition to a few infrastructure projects. So, how are they going to get that passed? And without getting too wonky here, because the rules are kind of wonky, but there's something in in D.C. called a, the budget reconciliation process. And that's where to get something through the Senate, normally you have to have 60 votes to get something through the Senate. And it's a 50-50 split right now with the vice president giving the 51st vote. So you don't have a strong majority. Frankly, you don't have a strong majority in the House either, which is why you're not getting broad sweeping legislation because nobody really has a mandate. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about America is you don't get, it makes it, our rules have made it difficult for stuff to pass 
unless there's a significant wave behind it. And I think that's the way the founding fathers set it up. And it makes this a beautiful place to live because you don't get jerked around by, by bills that pass and then get reversed two or four years later. So the budget re reconciliation process, that was actually created way back in 1974, and it's been used a, a little over 20 times since, since then. And there was something called the Bird Rule. Robert Bird, he's a, he was a retired, probably deceased now, West Virginia senator. It's kind of weird that Joe Manchin, <laughs> the current swing vote in the Senate, is also from West Virginia, so I'm not sure what this West Virginia thing is about. But that said, that anything done under budget reconciliation cannot last more than 10 years. After 10 years, whatever we did today expires. So, Walter, we've talked a bunch of times on, on these podcasts that the Trump tax cuts expire after 10 years. And that's because they were done under budget reconciliation. They couldn't get a bunch of Democrats to agree, so they said, you know what, we'll do it with our own little majority here. And that's why those tax cuts expire after the 2025, after December 31st of 2025. This is the exact same process they're using now to try to push through this really big infrastructure package. So what happens is, you can pass this with a simple majority through the Senate. Usually it takes 60 votes, but now 50 is fine. The bill can't be filibustered, can't be um, uh, blocked or slowed down by the minority party if it's being done under budget reconciliation. Debate is limited to 20 hours, so you can't go on and on and on. And it doesn't allow amendments if there are costs associated with those amendments. So what it does is it strips this thing down. It has to be basically budget or finance related. The House, uh, the Senate parliamentarian determines he or she throws stuff out of the proposed bill and says, no, you can't do that in a reconciliation bill. You have to take that through the entire Senate. So it's, it's a really narrow gate that they have to pass this through. And so that's what they are doing right now with this super big infrastructure bill. So that's just a little bit about budget reconciliation, but that is why I am totally convinced that it is going to pass, but I think it's going to be trimmed down a lot before it passes. So the 3.5 trillion is not going to end up being 3.5 trillion. It's going to be less. And a lot of that is because it has to be paid for. And the Democrats know that they're going to pass this at a 50-50 Senate vote with uh, Vice President Harris casting the deciding vote. So they all have to agree on all of the details. And that's why Kirsten Cinema and uh, Senators Cinema and uh, Joe Manchin have so much power because they have real, they're, they're centrist Democrats and they have strong opinions as to what, they're, what they will and won't be able to do as they go up for re-election. So that's kind of where we are. I thought it might be interesting to take a look at the key components of what taxes are going to be raised and frankly, what they're not going to get done as far as raising taxes so that our listeners could put themselves into the picture and say, well, how is that going to affect me and my family over the next two, three, five, ten years? That's going to be something that I think a lot of people are interested in tuning in to see the results of. I guess we don't have, um, 
you know, quite as uh, clear of a timeline as kind of part one of that infrastructure process coming to a head this this Thursday or the, the day that we're releasing this podcast uh, for many who are probably listening to it or uh, within a couple of days of that. Um, so part two will be interesting to see how it unfolds. Any actionable things that somebody listening to the show today can do, or do we need to just kind of sit and watch and wait? I think there are going to be a couple of actionable items, and I'm okay. going to, uh, I have three in mind, and I'm going to uh, discuss those right at the end after I lay out what are the most likely things that are going to happen to our tax structure okay. and who they're going to impact. So I've identified mm, six different things that are likely to be used as pay-fors for this infrastructure bill. It is very likely. So there's no, uh, basically no way it's going to be $3.5 trillion. It could be, it's probably somewhere around $1.5 trillion, maybe a little bit less, uh, to get everybody on board. So the one thing to remember as you're listening to this podcast is President Biden was super clear when he was campaigning that he is not going to increase taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. And he has been, that's a drumbeat he's had since he was a candidate and he has kept it up. And so you think back, Walter, I don't know how old you were when George H.W. Bush was president. And in his first and only term, as he was running for, for president, he said, read my lips, no new taxes. I'm, I'm, pro- I, I've heard, heard that. people reference the quote many times. I was a youngster, David. I, I probably wasn't watching much, <laughs> uh, much C-SPAN in the in that in those days. But all right, well, I was a voter, and <laughs> it is. I can just I see him saying it on TV. And then what did he do a couple years later? Raised yeah, taxes. he raised taxes. Oops. So I'll assure you, President Biden would love to have a second term, and if he is committed that he's not raising taxes on anybody making less than four hundred thousand dollars a year. He is not going to sign a bill that raises taxes on people making less than $400,000 a year. So that's the first thing to take away this as a, from this as a listener. If, if that's where your joint family income is, and it could end up being $450,000 for joint and four hundred dollars for singles. But if, if that's where you are, then you have a very high probability of not having your taxes increased. But one group that is absolutely going to have their taxes increased are those that make over 400 grand a year. And what they're probably going to do is raise that tax rate from 37% up to 39.6. Coincidentally, that's exactly where it's going to go back to after the Trump tax cuts expire. So all they're doing here is expiring them four years early. Now, it's a big deal if that's you, but that's another, you know, 2.6% plus a 3% excise tax if you make income of over $5 million a year. So that clearly affects, you know, the upper, I don't know what that is, upper one and a half, maybe 2%, uh, certainly less than the upper 5% of earners in America that over four or $500,000 a year. So that's one. Uh, tax rates for the, for the, the top tax bracket is, is going to go from 37 to 39.6. And that's almost certainly going to pass. There's been a lot of talk about long-term capital gains rates. In, in fact, Walter, we, we've probably mentioned that on three of the last five podcasts, but we've got a little more clarity here as we're coming right up to the, the finish line on these two bills. The original thought was that President Biden wanted to make that equal to the top income tax bracket, 39.6, up from 20% up to 39.6. And even some of the Dems said, wait a minute. And Joe Manchin in particular said, nah, 
We are not going to do that. So right now what it looks like is that the marginal tax bracket for capital gains, for long-term capital gains, is very likely to increase from 20 up to 25%. And again, that's for people who make over $400,000 a year. Now, that it's possible that that is retroactive. President Biden wants to make it retroactive all the way back to when he first talked about it back in like April. Uh, some stuff I read last week said, eh, that's probably retroactive to earlier this month when it actually got started talking about by Senate and House. And then there is, um, there's certainly a chance that it won't be retroactive to anywhere in 2021 or maybe to the date it's purchased. So looking forward to actionable items, there's going to be one related to long-term capital gains you might have in your portfolio. So those are, those are the first two. One is ordinary income tax rates are going up if you're in the top bracket. The second is if, you're in the, if you make over $400,000 a year, capital gains, your long-term capital gains rate is going from 20 to 25, and that's almost certain to happen. Number three is pretty wonky. There's something called carried interest, and that is basically the income that uh, private equity and hedge fund managers earn on startups that they provide money to. And without getting into any more detail than that, if they do something and they hold it for three years, then that income that they would earn on that is counted as a long-term capital gain. And uh, the, the vast majority of people that I read say, that's stupid, that should just be ordinary income, that's their livelihood. What they're likely to do is move that out from three years out to five-year holding period. So they're not getting away with carried interest, they're not doing away with carried interest, but they're likely to extend it and make it that much harder to get. So those are three. The, um, there's also a, uh, one of the things we love to talk about, I love to talk about because I think it's really important, are Roth conversions. And those are likely to be eliminated. In other words, you can't even do one if you make more than $450,000 a year as a joint filer or $400,000 as a single filer. What they're saying is that Roth is such a good deal that if you make over four hundred dollars or $450,000 a year, eh, sorry, we're not going to let you do Roth conversions. Now, it's kind of weird. They have, a, they have an effective date of December 31st of 2031, so 10 years away. Who's thinking that far in advance? Well, exactly. So we don't know if that's a typo or, or what, but right now... <laughs> That, first of all, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So it could very likely be that at the end of this year, they outlaw Roth conversions for people making over 400, 450 grand a year. So at the risk of loading two more on top of that, they are actually making some other changes to, to IRAs. And that's kind of one of the sacrosanct areas that you're thinking, you know what, Congress is going to mess with a lot, but they're not going to mess with our IRAs and the Roth IRAs. And so this next one is for what they classify as very large IRAs. And these would be very large IRAs. They're saying that if, you, if your IRAs, if you add them all up, 401ks and 403bs and IRAs, if they exceed $10 million, then you can't put any more in. Well, that's it's arguable as to whether that is going to be a big thing. But it also requires, this is a big thing, 
if your IRA or 401k has more than 10 million in it, then half of the amount over 10 million has to be, it's a required minimum distribution now, like in one lump. <laughs> and if it's over 20 million, then everything over 20 million has to come out immediately. So what they're really trying to do is get the IRA back to, if you would consider $10 million to be an every man IRA, an every person IRA, kind of run of the mill, well, that's still a pretty big IRA. But what they're saying is, you know what, if, if it's that big, then something kind of funny is going on here. And one of the funny things that went on was there's a guy, oh, he's some sort of private equity guy. I don't remember his name and probably wouldn't say it if I knew it, but he is like a, you might remember this, Walter, is it a five billion dollar Roth IRA. Uh, yes, that sounds about right. It's something crazy. Yeah. What he did was he had a private company that he was in. He was in the private equity business and he put some private stock in there and valued it himself. And it might have been PayPal or something like that, which everybody knows got to be a very, very pricey company. Yeah, I think that was one and of them among a few other <laughs> a few other things. And yes, I just looked it up for that. That was five billion. OK. And they're saying, wait a minute, we're not going to do that anymore. So the other thing they've done is they want to um, say that you can only put SEC registered securities into an IRA or a Roth. They're not going to let you put private equity or venture capital or other illiquid assets like that. So those are changes that frankly aren't going to affect many, if any, of our listeners. But it is kind of interesting that they're, they're trying to find crafty ways of taxing the rich without messing with the tax structure too much. So it'll be interesting. Those are very likely to pass based on what I read over the weekend. And um, so it seems like there are enough votes on each side of the aisle to get that to happen. And then there is, we've talked a little bit here, but not much about estate planning and inheritance planning. And we've talked some about the stepped up cost basis at death. And all that means is if you inherit something, let's just say from your, from your parents, uh, from your mother, she's the second to die. She has held stock in her account uh, for 30 years. They never sold it. And it's appreciated dramatically. Let's say that, that she and your dad bought it for three bucks a share and now it's 300 bucks a share. Well, under current rules, you inherit that stock at 300 bucks a share and that gain is never taxed. You get a step up in your cost basis. Same with, with farmland, with small businesses, with a lot of different assets. It doesn't matter what somebody paid for them, what the cost basis is. When they die, you get a stepped up cost basis. And they are one of the, one of the, um, suggestions was we need to repeal that and there's they, they don't have the votes to do that but they're going to backdoor a solution into that it looks like so uh, based on the um, uh, i believe this is part of the trump tax cuts which frankly are going to expire in 2025 anyway but there was an increase in how big an estate can be and have it not be taxable at death that now is about 11.7 million per member of the couple. So $23.4 million 
can pass to the next generation without being having any estate taxes. What they're talking about doing is rolling that back to five million in estate tax exemptions. And that's very likely, first of all, it's very likely to pass. Second of all, it's likely to have an effective date of January 1 of next year. So those are kind of the ways that they are going to try to pay for this three and a half trillion. Those amounts don't come up to three and a half trillion. And since they're doing this through reconciliation, they have to have it all paid for. Boy, it's so many moving parts, David. It is. And, and it is a lot like sausage making. The, the number of parts that go into this meal that we're getting ready to get served up to us, <laughs> it's really something. But if you want to get something done in Washington, you have so many competing views and competing values that it is a lot like sausage making. And it is a bit of a, a swamp. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> closing your eyes and, and taking a big bite of it is the appropriate method. But I tend to like to know what's in the sausage that I'm getting ready to eat. And are there ways I can pick out the pieces I don't want? So picking out the pieces you don't want is kind of how we want to wrap this up, which is, are there things I should be doing now to avoid some of these high probability consequences for when this legislation almost assuredly passes? This is not, this is not the one for this Thursday. It's the one for, for later, the big $3.5 trillion package, which is going to be trimmed down. But are there things that are tied to that that I can make a change on today that might help me and my family going forward. So I've come up with three, and I thought we'd just wrap up with those three. Let's get them. Let's knock them down one at a time. <laughs> What's first? All right. Well, so for capital gains, again, these is, this is for people that make over four hundred or $450,000 a year, depending on whether you're filing single or joint. But there's a good chance. We don't know the effective date of this, you know, when they're going to make a cutoff. But it's at least a good chance that it's going to be later in September or October, or maybe the time when they vote on the bill and pass the bill. That's a reasonable time and not this dramatic look back. So what you can do is you can sell those appreciated assets today and pay on capital gains rates as of now, 20% for those people instead of the 25%. So save yourself 5% uh, on the gains, on those long-term capital gains. And the other thing to remember here is you might say, well, I want, I want to keep that, those assets. Let's say it's an appreciated stock portfolio. <clears throat> well, there is nothing that says you couldn't sell those assets, recognize the gain, and buy them back five minutes later. There's something called the wash sale rule, but that only impacts selling for losses. And in this case, we're selling for gains to recognize a, a long-term capital gain now for tax reasons. So, uh, that is a, that's a reason why you might take action today is if you find yourself with income over $400,000 and you want the long-term capital gain at the 20%, this might be a, 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 little, a narrow little window where you can sell those assets, buy them right back, and be taxed at a somewhat lower capital gains rate. If you happen to have, uh, the corollary to that is if tax rates are going up, for you in the future. You make over $400,000 a year and you have capital losses you could take. Well, don't take them this year. You want to take those in future years when your tax rate is going to be higher. That makes sense. Okay. So actionable item number one sounds doable, David, not too complicated to, uh, to at least be pondering and thinking about. Yep. Number two would be defer the capital losses uh, for, for time when the rates go up. Yep. And number three 
if you find yourself where you have an estate that is greater than 10 million, so you're somewhere between 10 and, and 22, $23 million, and you're saying, you know, there's a really good chance that, that this estate tax exemption is going down. Uh, what you're able to do is to gift those monies now, and whatever what what you gift now is under that twenty three point four million dollars for a couple eleven point seven million each. The year you gift it is based on the rules of that year. So if you wait till next year and they reduce the uh, exemption to five million per husband and five million per wife you could only give away 10 million bucks and have it not included in your estate tax calculation if you do it this year you'd have an extra 13 million of room to do that so that doesn't affect a lot of americans by a number it might sound like a lot but percentage wise that's not a a large percentage of americans but i know there are listeners to this podcast that have that amount and so if you need some additional uh, guidance on that, uh, now's the time to get that. You probably have on this strategy until December 31st to make those gifts. Uh, but this would be something that you want to pay attention to because that estate tax exemption is very likely to go down to $5 million per uh, individual in that couple. Helpful to hear all of those different little moving parts, David. Gosh, going to be a lot to keep our eyes on, but I have a feeling you'll be updating us as we go along here. If anything changes or moves or shifts and all that good stuff, you'll be letting us know what to do on this end, right? I will, and, and time will be short uh, because if they don't get it done before Thanksgiving, you know, it's very unlikely to happen. So everybody's going to get real serious real fast, uh, this Thursday being the, the starting point. Uh, where that first trillion is very likely to be passed. Uh, so we'll, we'll certainly keep our ear to the ground, and uh, I'll bet we have a lot to look at from the Sausage Factory over the next month and a half. Absolutely. And if you need some help guiding through this, guiding your plan through this, or <laughs> guiding yourself through what's to come, and uh, want to talk about it a little bit with David and the team at KC Financial Advisors, do invite you to reach out. It's very easy to touch base, set up a time to chat, whether it be over the phone, come into the office for a complete planning review, uh, ask a couple of simple questions, or dive deep into all the nitty and gritty parts of your financial plan. Uh, wherever you are along that spectrum, David and his team are happy to help and uh, begin that discussion with you. You can give a call if you prefer that way, 913-317-1414 is the number, 913-317-1414, or go online to cover your assets, KC. Dot com. Cover your assets, kc.com. And we'll put all the contact info you need in the description of today's show so it's easy for you to locate and to find. David, thanks for filling us in on all these details. And uh, we'll keep our eye to the sausage factory and see what comes out of it. <laughs> we'll do that. Um, I've, uh, just over the last week, I've gotten a couple of really good questions in. So next week, we'll probably do a, a round of listener questions. And who knows? There may be a couple that are tax related. Excellent. Excellent. We'll be geared up for that, and maybe we'll have a few uh, tax updates by then as well, and uh, we'll dive into all of it coming up on the next edition of the Cover Your Assets KC Podcast. For David, I'm Walter. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. 
Investment advisory services offered through Brookstone Capital Management, LLC, BCM, a registered investment advisor. BCM and KC Financial Advisors are independent of each other. For full disclosures, please visit our website at www.coveryourassetskc.com.